morning. Very humbled to be with you all today. Uh, me and my family are actually here all together. Uh, my wife's um, out in the back somewhere with our, our newest son, uh, little Peter. Uh, he's two weeks old, and our three other thank you, thank you. Um, and our, our three other kids, Josiah, Jonah, and Aaron, are, are downstairs. I'm sure having a great time, too. So please join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing over his word. Father, thank you for the worship this morning. I am overwhelmed by your love. Father, there are those who come here this morning who need mercy, who need a reminder that you are a gracious God, who come with hurts, who come with discouragements, and don't know what to do with them. And we thank you for a psalm like this that shows us how to come before you with broken and contrite hearts, trusting that you are a God who gives mercy graciously. So let us find that today if we need it. Let us be reminded of that. Lord, let us come to it for the first time if we need to, too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Pastor Tim already gave a little intro. I, I am continuing the series Only God, um, your top 10 um, favorite psalms. And one of the great things about the psalms is that they kind of cover the high and low points of life, right? Right? You know, they cover aspects where not only the psalmist is strong in the Lord, but also times where he's wavering because he's struggling. Maybe an enemy is attacking him. Or maybe there's a circumstance in life that's oppressing him. And yet, in spite of that, he desperately clings to the Lord, and the Lord meets him in his clinging. He's reminded of the Lord's promises and giving special grace in that moment. One of the things I love about the Psalms is we look at the story, and there's different topics covered in each Psalm, right? Very different topics, but the same story. Broken people trying to live faithful lives by God's grace. Amen? Amen. When you look at the Psalms, we see our story. We see their struggles. We see our struggles. And the same is true when we look at Psalm 51. When you look at Psalm 51, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. It comes at one of the most darkest points in David's life. And in 2 Samuel 11, doesn't hide any details about the situation to us. David, at the pinnacle of his reign as king in Israel, makes a terrible mistakes. He forces Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his soldiers, to have an affair with him. He thought it's going to be a one-time affair, but quickly it becomes more complicated that she gets pregnant. Instead of fessing up at that moment, he decides to have Uriah sent back home, hoping a reconnection with his wife would make him believe later on that the child was really his. When Uriah refuses to actually stay at home with his wife, David goes to more extreme measures. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a sealed note, which was essentially a death sentence, ordering his uh, commander of the army, Joab, to have Uriah put in the front lines to ensure that Uriah would die. Quickly after, David marries Bathsheba so that people would think the baby was born within their marriage. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And David sends a prophet, or more so God sends a prophet to David to rebuke him, Nathan. And Nathan shares this story, a parable, of a rich man who has lots of flocks and lots of herds. 
And yet when a guest comes to his house and is, is looking for food, takes a lamb from a poor man who only had one lamb. Now to that rich man, it doesn't seem like much, but to that poor man, it was everything. And you could just imagine that David is livid as he's leaning in, thinking to himself, how could someone do such a thing? And you know the story any well, pretty well. You know what Nathan does soon after. He says, David, that man is you. He goes on to tell him, on behalf of God, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you the kingdom. I'm giving you Saul's house. And I would have given you more if that wasn't enough. And he says more specifically in 2 Samuel 12, 9, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. David's response is simple, but it shows a lot about his integrity in the end. In verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's reply, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Folks, that's a, a perfect summary of Psalm 51, if you look at it clearly there. And th that might not relate specifically to our struggles. I think we all have had situations where we can look at post-conversion and say, I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that at all. In, in, in nine years of ministry, I've seen so many people walk through the doors. It's just struggling with guilt, struggling with the thought, is what I have done forgivable? Could, could, could God really cleanse me of even this? And they wrestle and wrestle. How do I get from guilt to grace again? I think if you look at the psalm, we see a couple steps you need to take. The first step is that we need to feel the weight of our sin. That, that sounds counterintuitive. But we need to first feel the weight of our sin. Notice how it's God's view of the situation that affects David's view. He says in verse 4, Against you, you alone, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Point here isn't that he doesn't understand his sins affected other people. Obviously he knows that, right? Of course he knows that. The point is, the fact that he has offended his God hurts him more. The fact that he can ever do to get something to God like this, who he cherishes and he loves and he honors above all else, breaks him up inside. And it's in that brokenness that he's crying out what he's saying here. Have you ever had someone in your life you just respected so much that, you know what, when, when you hurt them, they don't even have to say a word to you. It's just a look. It's just a look of knowing that you, that you disappointed them, that pierces to your heart. Of course, David knows what he's done, has dramatic effects on others in his life, but more importantly, it has hurt the God he loves. And similar in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret place. That phrase, truth in the inward being, is suggesting an integrity of heart. And you notice in the next line, he says, God has given him that integrity of heart. God has taught him that wisdom. God has showed him what is right and wrong. And so even though he got lost in his passion, guess what? Even when he was lost in the passion, he knew that what he was doing was wrong. We're told the reason that David had a heart after God is because he was willing, unlike Saul, to follow God in all his ways, which makes this moment feel so much heavy. Now, I'm going to say something a little strange here. So brace yourselves. 
Verse 17 says that's exactly how God wants them to feel right now. In this moment. In this point. He wants David to have a broken and contrite heart in this moment. It is the only sacrifice that is pleasing to God in a time of sin. That a person would understand sin is lethal, it's destructive, it hurts them, it troubles them to the point that it troubles God. And they would show the same type of remorse for that sin. You know, there's a difference between someone who's sorry they got caught and someone who's sorry they did something, right? We all know the difference between the two. Holly and I had a, an acquaintance uh, a few years ago who got convicted of pedophilia. And it, it, was, it was devastating and shocking. Um, we knew this individual through church circles, so that made it even more shocking. We knew the victims. He hurt too. And the days leading up to the trial, um, some people talking to him told me he was very dismissive about what he had done, um, and he was actually even blaming others for what he had done. I, I guess it had been years tracing back to how many people he's hurt. Same act. But I thought to myself, you know what? The day of the sentence, I mean, come on, you're standing before the judge. You're in an orange jumpsuit. You're in front of people who have found out one of the darkest, ugliest secrets in your life. Surely that should humble you, right? You would think, it surely would humble you to say, I'm sorry, at least to the victims. But with an arrogance, he stood up and said, I know that God has forgiven me in spite of what anyone else here may think. And he sat down. And even as the victims got up and they offered forgiveness to this man, he didn't even acknowledge him. Folks, I don't know about you, but something's off there. That, that to me sounds like a man who's frustrated he got caught versus who's sorry about what he's done. Genuinely sorry. Paul calls that in 2 Corinthians 7, worldly sorrow as compared to godly sorrow that leads to repentance. One just wants to avoid judgment. The other wants to be reconciled to God. So you see, Nathan told David, he reassured him, God's not going to punish you. for you, you, What you did was wrong, but God's not going to take your life for this. He had that reassurance. You know why he's praying this prayer? Because he wants the warmth of fellowship restored to his heart with God. He wants to be back with him again. And so when you read these verses, they, they, they seem deep and, and extreme, but they're the right place to be. In verse 3, when you hear about him saying, my sin is ever before me. And it's like a recording that plays over and over again. I see it. I know what I've done. God, turn your face away from me. God, I am impure before your holy sight. I'm like a filthy rag that needs to be washed over and over again to truly be clean. That kind of transparency with sin is very uncomfortable to us, if we're honest. Right? Anyone else agree other than one person? Yeah. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. I mean, when you, when you start talking about this stuff, people bring up topics like, are you challenging our security in Christ? We're not doing that. We're not doing that. Or, or, why do I have to ask for forgiveness if at the point of conversion, I'm already forgiven? These are good questions. And the thing I want you to consider is that though God is patient towards our stumblings, very patient, intentional sin offends him. Intentional sin affects, offends a holy God. He cannot stand the sight of intentional sin. And when we come to him asking for forgiveness, you know what we're saying? 
God, I hurt you, and that hurts me, and I'm sorry. And when we do that, we're keeping ourselves in a place where we are acknowledging that he is worthy of the honor and love he truly deserves. You know what the opposite happens, though, if we don't do that? We become callous. Persistent sin can make us callous. It can make us insensitive to the voice of God in our lives. It can build a wall that becomes thicker and thicker as we continue in our persistent sin. And that's just a dangerous place to be, folks. Let me tell you, how many times have you heard, you know, a, a marriage or a family that's just broken up out of nowhere and someone in the situation does something that's completely uncharacteristic to what we know them to be? Can I just tell you something? That didn't happen overnight. That was hidden sin that has finally bore its fruit. Sin has lethal effects on our lives. It just does. And we have to understand the power of it. Proverbs 28, 13 puts it this way. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. There's, there's a pastor uh, this summer who um, was confronted by his elders for a few accusations of having an affair, having a couple affairs. Um, he admitted these were true. Um, very shocking to many people. He affects thousands of people's lives, of course, in a bigger church context. Um, but one thing I will say that really impressed me about the situation, it's a little rare from other situations I've heard. This pastor wrote an open letter to his congregation, acknowledging his sin, acknowledging the fact that it had disqualified him from ministry, asking for the church's forgiveness, and then saying, stay focused on this cross in spite of man's failure. I don't know this man, but to do something like that in one of the most humiliating moments in your life just gives me a little glimpse into the window of his heart that is genuinely seeking remorse for what he's done. And maybe this is the first step towards that. Amen? We have to have that mindset as a body in Christ, as people in Christ. Healing comes through confessing our sin to a gracious Gracious God. We ask for forgiveness because we know we have it in Christ. We ask for forgiveness because we know he's ready to give it before we even ask. And so we need to remember the second step. We need to get to the second step, which is we need to trust in the depths of God's mercy. David opens his prayer um, with begging God to take pity on him. And he doesn't beg God to take pity on him according to everything he's done in the past. Or, or something he can prove in the present. The rest of verse 1 tells us, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, unfailing love is, is God's loyal love, his covenant-keeping love. His compassion is, is suggesting, again, giving something the person doesn't deserve. And so when you put these together, you have to understand, David although rightfully so, is not coming here, you know, presumptuous, as if he earns or deserves anything in this position. But we need to take it a step further and also understand he never deserved mercy. Never did. He's not presuming on something because he never had this status of privilege. And doing the sin didn't take away a status of privilege. David was a great man, but God didn't call him because he was a great man. God called him because God called him. 
God called them because God is a gracious God who calls broken men and women to himself. And you see that throughout Scripture. We're we're talking about Abraham in our church. And and Abraham, as great as he was, Abraham had his flaws. He had times of weakness. He had moments where he did things directly contradicting God's promise. You know what? God stayed faithful in spite of those glaring mistakes. Genesis 15, 6 tells us we have to come to this conclusion. By faith alone, Abraham was considered righteous. Righteous. Romans 3.25, speaking to Jesus, saying, to Jesus says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a wrath bearer, a wrath averter. He's taking my penalty so I don't have to take it. By his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, even in the Old Testament, God was looking back. God was looking forward and had a plan that went back. That people who walked according to Abraham's faith would have their sins forgiven through the cross. Folks, how else, how else does David, who had two people killed, Uriah and an innocent child, through his sin, and and stripped away everything for Beersheba, walk away alive and have his sin taken away? He needed a sin averter. He needed a sin bearer. Or he dies. Get what we're saying there? Pastor John Piper says it aptly about the psalm. When we get to the psalm, we get to the gospel. No one deserves mercy. No one deserves mercy. We're not saved because of who we are or what we've done. We're saved in spite of who we are and what we've done. We are saved because God pursued us when we were in a life of sin. And we were dead. And when you're dead, you're dead. Right? (laughs) You're not kind of dead, you're dead. There's nothing you can do without his grace. He breathed life into us through his Holy Spirit, compelling our hearts to love and serve him. That is why we're here today. Nothing else. Nothing else. And you keep this in your psyche. You keep this in your mind. You understand when you sin. It is by the cross that you are forgiven. It is not by what you can do or what you haven't done. Richard Baxter, a theologian, put it this way. He said, have we paid for nothing for God's eternal love? and nothing for his son of love, and nothing for his spirit, and our grace and faith, and nothing for our eternal rest. What an astonishing thought it will be to think of the unmeasurable difference, hear this, of our deservings and our receivings. Oh, how free was all this love, and how free is this enjoyed glory. So let then deserve be written on the floor of hell, but on the floor on door of heaven and life, the free gift. You are forgivable because of what Christ has done for you when he died on the cross. There's no sin too vile to forgive. Now, here's the, here's the thing. We have people in our lives we've hurt maybe through mistakes, and maybe they don't want to be in our lives anymore because of those mistakes, or they keep us at arm's distance. And, and so there's a couple things we have to look at. First, if we have acknowledged our sin humbly to God and, and we have sought to make things right with those individuals, we have honored God and God will honor that. But secondly and more importantly, God does not forgive like people. People have a way of hanging your guilt over your head. They may say they forgive you, but sometimes they can play games. 
And they can find ways to manipulate and find ways to make sure you remember that you've done this, little ways to test you. When God declares you are forgiven because you have humbly come to him, you are forgiven. It is complete. It is final. It is done. Once he's declared it, you have no worries. There is no asterisk next to your name. There's not this invisible scarlet letter on your head because of anything you've done. Christ's blood has washed it away. Forgiveness is forgiveness. Forgiveness is forgiveness in him. So I hope you've been following our train of thought. When you see the weight of your sin, here's the crazy thing about it. You appreciate the wonderful mercy and grace of God. You can't have it without the other. You have to see how ugly it is to see how gracious he is. And it brings us to our last point. We need to passionately pursue the grace to change. True repentance leads to a hate of what we've done. True repentance leads to a hate of what we've done. But it's also under the conviction that we can't change alone. Amen? We can't, we can't get to the person we want to do, be without God's grace. One, one person put it bestly like this. At our best, we're like leaky vessels. Constantly in need of the grace of God to do what he's called us to do. And, and so David makes four requests that I want to go through quickly. Uh, the first of those four requests in verse 8 is a restored joy. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And in verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And you've noticed that adultery is not mentioned once in this passage. The actual sin is not mentioned once. And some theologians think the reason for that is because it's a symptom, not the root of the real problem. That the root of the real problem is misplaced joy. That adultery happened because something in David's mind thought that this is going to give me something I don't have. And oftentimes that can happen in our lives when we think, let me just simplify it real quick because I don't have too much time. But simplify it real quick like this. We will follow what we desire the most. That's just a simple principle, right? We're going to put our time into it. We're going to put our money into it. We're going to put everything into what we desire the most. And we will worship at that altar. It's just the truth. And so if it's not God for a season, you will find and I will find time will him will slip from being sweet to burdensome. It will sap the joy from reading the word and prayer and fellowship. It will take away the glory of being in his presence. Does that make sense to you? Second request, second request, for a renewed commitment to the Lord, that God would continue his sanctifying work in his life by giving him, or continuing to give him a new heart, that he would give him a right and firm spirit. And let me tell you something, that right and firmness, we need that, because life is challenging. And we go through all types of difficult transitions, and cancer, and death. And this is talking about the spirit to stay steadfast in faith as you go through some of the terrible things in life. You hear me on that? That God would give us also, or him, he said, that God would give me also a willing spirit, a spirit that's enthusiastic, that's generous towards serving the Lord in any context, any context. Third request, a restored sense of assurance. Yes, we're finally getting to verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. I think we've seen enough in this passage to know that David believes that God is going to hold on to him. I believe that. The fact that he's even praying this prayer suggests that. Right? 
So what is he saying here? Well, when you get that distant from God and you feel that cold from God, you don't want to go there again. He saw what it made him. <laughs> he saw what sin did to him. He saw the person he turned into and this looking back and saying, God, don't ever let me become that way again. Protect me from this. Boy, that's a, that's a good prayer to pray. Fourth is the lips to praise him. You get the impressions by verses 14 and 15. He feels so guilty here that he can't even lift up his head before God. God, God literally opened my lips so I can speak to you. And I think that's an encouragement for those who might feel just as guilty today to even come to church or even be in fellowship. That God welcomes you here. You are welcome to fellowship and you need to pray that he would release you of that guilt. A guilt that lingers even after repentance is not from the Holy Spirit. That's from Satan. He's trying to sap the joy from your life. And so we pray for joy to be renewed. I want to close with this story. Um, Robert Robinson. Anyone ever heard of Robert Robinson? Writer of the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Um, he actually, earlier on, um, was a man who loved the Lord fire for the Lord and was in ministry. But he had some years where he went astray. And one day, there was this lady um, driving in this carriage to church and asked, would you like to join me going to church? And for, for some reason, he said yes. And he gets in the carriage, and the lady's reading a book of poetry. And one of the poetries, uh, or the poet she's reading, he, she notices, has his name on it. It was the lyrics that come thou found. And so she hands it over to him, and he reads, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. And then with tears in his eyes, he, he moves down a little bit, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He tells this woman, I've done this. I've lived this. And the woman says, well, well, what about the next line? Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. That line is as true as the first two lines. God is still opening his arms to you today if you would graciously let him take you. If you confess and come to him. Folks, this is true for us today too. We've fallen out of fellowship. His mercies never end towards us. We simply just need to ask. We need to sense the weight of our sin. Feel it. We also need to know the depths of God's mercy. And then we need to have a passionate pursuit of the grace to change.